Welcome to episode number 77 of the Balancing Act podcast. I'm Andy Tempty. Today, we've got Mark Coggins joining us as the third guest in our mini-series on the importance of building the skill of decision-making in individuals and in teams. Mark is co-founder and board director of Cranley China and is director of KB Financial. Thanks for sharing your talents and insights with us today, Mark. Hey, hi, Andy. Great to be here. Um, Really looking forward to uh, taking part in this uh, series. And I just hope for the listeners that I've got a few things uh, to say that uh, make sense. And if they can help in any way in uh, their journey, then that's fantastic. Well, as uh, as a former colleague of yours, I always appreciated what you had to say in the business meetings that we would uh, have together at Kaplan. So I'm sure it's going to be a very informative conversation. Uh, so before we get started, uh, we do this on every show. It'd be great if you told our listeners your story. So so I'm a I'm a I'm a Brit. Um educated in in the uk i uh studied economics at um university college london uh back in the early 80s uh that time uh can't say it take made a great part in my career except as a qualification it was quite a left-leaning uh university at the time steeped in keynesian economics and uh but I came out of there and then joined one of, at the time, I think it was a big eight firm, which then became one of the big six firms, which I think are now the big four firms, uh, and trained as a chartered accountant, uh, working in a business development group, and qualified as a, as a chartered accountant, You know, which gave me certainly the kind of nuts and bolts, which... Oddly enough, I think a lot of times in education, you don't actually know the benefits of what you're learning until sometime later in life. But uh, even though I didn't ever really think I would go down that route, it was uh, it's proved to be an incredibly uh, useful tool bag, I'd say, in some of the decision making that uh, has been a feature of my later life. I then actually went into teaching of uh, finance. Uh, for a number of years, which uh, which was a terrific experience, actually, and, and oddly enough, then had huge bearings on the later part of my life. Uh, enjoyed it tremendously. Um, I then became an equity analyst, uh, head of research for uh, Parabar, big in French investment bank, and then HSBC. Moved to Hong Kong. Then ran the equity business, so research, trading, sales for HSBC for Asia Pacific uh, until early 2000s. And then, big decision actually, then went back into kind of education. Uh, approached Kaplan in 2003, 2004. And um, built quite a substantial kind of education business from China all the way through to Australia, principally focused on professional education and higher education, and also principally focused on really the whole concept of either taking students to the source, i.e. to the US, the UK, or Australia for an education, or bringing Western education into kind of Asia. And we had a 
huge amount of, of, of university partners and, and professional qualifications and designations. And by 2013, we had about 120,000 students studying at various kind of campuses and, and facilities that we had through the region. Um, and I guess then that's kind of continued to define what I've done from then is really around kind of education and 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 with still a big emphasis on on really kind of global education and the marrying of and i'll love to talk about this a little bit in more detail as we go through but really the kind of whole concept of globalization of education and and increasingly kind of learning how what we can do in terms of providing education be beneficial to say a Chinese audience, but also learning increasingly from what they do in terms of producing great students as well. And so I'm now based principally in London. I still have some businesses in China at both the tertiary level and the secondary level in terms of international education. That's a that's an incredible incredible story. I really like to introduce uh, you know the these. Uh, global businesses, global leaders uh, to to our listeners, and have, have you know just have them listen to the diversity of uh, of stories that uh, that 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 leaders on the show uh, can tell, uh, and that's a really great one. Uh, if you had to pick one event in your life that just put rocket boosters behind your career, what would that have been? I think. I mean. I think there's two, so I'll mention the two and then maybe focus on 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 one in terms of kind of more detail. So I suppose, you know, I moved to Hong Kong in 1995-96, and that was a very defining moment in terms of 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 accelerating kind of the possible and also kind of putting oneself in an environment that was slightly outside your comfort area, comfort zone. And then really kind of saying, well, you can either sink or swim in that environment. And that was that was without doubt a trigger. I think one that probably was more tangible in terms of kind of what then happened was that um, I'd worked, as I'd said a moment ago, for Parabar, French Investment Bank. I then went to HSBC, which in the context of of Asia in particular is is kind of enormous, and particularly in the context of Hong Kong. You know, I mean, some of your listeners don't may not know, but you know, I mean, HSBC was the Hong Kong and Shanghai Banking Corporation, and you know, so having a senior position in Hong Kong in that particular institution was 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 quite significant. You know, what I found is that I, much as I'd enjoyed my time there, I, you know, it, it, you sometimes know when you're kind of due for a change, if you like. And it had been a hell of a ride. When I arrived in Hong Kong, we had the period up to the handover, which was phenomenal in terms of the impact on Hong Kong. That was shortly followed by the Asian crisis, which which was phenomenal, but for a whole different and negative set of reasons and very challenging set of reasons. We then went almost immediately into the dot-com bubble. And then that was shortly then covered by the burst of that bubble. And then it was then followed up by the SARS epidemic in, in, in Hong Kong, which decimated the city. So you'd had this just 
roller coaster of a ride, you know, in which there was many, yeah. many great moments, but also some 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 quite challenging ones. And and you know, I sat back and decided that 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 perhaps it was time to kind of look at a change. And it was a difficult one because going from education to investment banking is 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 relatively easy if you just look at dollar signs. Going from investment banking back into education is is feels a little more uncomfortable, and particularly when you've got three sons under the age of four. So 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 the accelerant was really then making that decision to to speak to Kaplan, start that kind of whole process, and then really kind of the 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 story which was which was which was amazing i mean we set up the business really in asia which had a small we had a small presence there at the time i i i got involved principally around professional education and i ought to say that the motivation really was i could see huge gaps in things like the cfa in terms of kind of more practical based financial education in what was still quite an emerging market and that then kind of triggered a whole process of of realizing that there was huge kind of gaps in in the education system throughout and a much more uh fluid and and i think kind of exciting opportunity for filling gaps that the public sector or the kind of if you like the institutional part of education wasn't filling and so we started a whole process of moving from Hong Kong, Singapore, and then up into mainland China. And then the whole, well, the introduction to the whole concept of education being a global provision and a service, which would allow students to kind of go outside the UK, Australia, as I was saying to you earlier on, but also then bringing these universities, institutions, and qualifications and the experience of other countries into Asia, you know, was 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 beyond my wildest dreams. And it was a great learning process, but also then allowed me to use my financial skills that I developed at Parabor and HSBC, um, you know, to build something that that I think that, you know, I felt very proud of and 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 I think other people part of the Kaplan family at the time felt pretty proud of. Yeah, I love it, Mark. You know, you know, I, I Kaplan is, uh, you know, it's very, very good experience for me and for many, many of our former colleagues who are now off working with uh, other businesses, other in other parts of the world. Uh, but I, I hear that periodically that you know, uh, joining joining Kaplan was certainly an accelerant for me, and uh, and and it's uh, really, really good to hear that it was as well for for you. Um, let uh, I, you know. I think it would be, be beneficial for our listeners for you to maybe dive in a little bit deeper on uh, on this business model of you know transnational education and specifically uh, what you're doing with uh, Cranley China. There, there's just I think a lack of information and knowledge about the mobility of students across borders. Yeah. So so. You know, as I as I mentioned a moment ago, I mean, I guess I've been actively involved in transnational education almost as long as anybody in the, in in anywhere actually. You know, back to kind of two thousand and four, two thousand and five. So we're now looking at you know kind of 
getting on for 20 years, which, which is in part kind of depressing, but, but there you go. The, the, you know, and in the period that, that I've been involved, then you've seen quite a significant kind of evolution. And I think there's important parts of this for all businesses that a theme can keep in place. But if you don't change within that and facilitating that, then you'll slim, you'll simply kind of die and drop off. And so if you look at transnational education, then it started off very much as a kind of agency-based business. It was agents talking to parents of students and connecting with universities in order to kind of get, let's say, Chinese students to go to US or UK universities. And the people who stayed as agents largely no longer exist. And in fact, back in 2007, we bought as Kaplan an agency business in China. And that business now is kind of effectively Cranley China, which is, which is in itself, I think, a wonderful story. Because what happened is that we evolved that business over time. So the agency business got replaced by a business that started saying, well, no, 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 you can't just go to a UK or a US university. You need proper preparation to make sure that when you arrive in, I don't know, let's say LA or London or wherever it might be, that you're properly prepared, not just linguistically, but also educationally in order to get the most out of what is a pretty expensive experience for the overseas student. So what we did is that we started this schools in schools business. So we teamed up with prestigious Chinese high schools. And the Chinese education system is, is incredibly uh, very merit-based, very score-based. And so as a result, then the schools are numbered number one, number two, number three, number four, number five. You know, there's no kind of names of, of emperors or, or, or disciples or anything like that. You know, they, 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 they just have a number. And that number roughly equates to kind of where they are in the pecking order. So across a whole range of Chinese cities, we went to school number one. And if we failed with school number two, number one, we went to number two, et cetera. But we got a, a, a clutch of, of, of prestigious Chinese high schools. And what we then did is that we we embedded an international curriculum within those high schools for students who were looking for a university experience outside China as opposed to kind of China. And then, and that's been, you know, that's been a great story. We've got about 10 of those across a whole range of kind of Chinese cities. But then again, the, the landscape started changing because what then happened is that you started getting significant investment and brand names coming into China essentially kind of moving into our space. So Cranley School is a prestigious UK boarding school, which I know is, is, not, is not a peculiar UK concept, but it's, 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 I suppose, more prevalent in the UK than elsewhere. So it's a top private boarding school based in the UK. And what we do is that we collaborate with them such that we then take Cranley schools to various cities in China some of whom we have an existing school within our school, as I described. Others are kind of new, brand spanking new. 
And we've now got two fabulous campuses with total boarding school where the students essentially do after uh, about 15, 16, they transition into into a, a Western curriculum with a view to preparing them for top schools in the US and the UK. Yeah, it's fascinating. I, I, I just, I just love the whole, the, the you know, the mobility of, uh, of human beings uh, cr- across the planet and the impact that transnational education, uh, what many call pathways, uh, uh, programs have in introducing uh, individuals to other cultures and uh, and and other uh, other ways of thinking. So, thank you for sharing that with us. Let's uh, let's dive into the topic at hand, which is decision making. I know we're about fifteen minutes in uh, and finally getting to decision making, but there was a method to our madness here. Can you help our under our listeners understand the process that you go through? when faced with making a challenging, multifaceted organizational decision? Yeah, I mean, the, the, it's an interesting one. And, and, and I, you know, throughout, I'll try and avoid repetition. And, but I think it's important that I try and contextualize, you know, about real life events that have taken place. You know, oddly enough, even back to kind of when I was, you know, a, a, a reasonably decent equity analyst and stuff, then, you know, I'm always looking for, in the first instance, kind of themes, big things that I believe will have both significant kind of opportunities, but also significant kind of trends over a period of time. So in some ways, I'm trying to kind of swim with the tide and even better, I'm trying to kind of see that a tide is coming. So right. take, again, I'll take international education, but I mean, you could take a whole host of different kind of areas. But my experience is, is that swimming with the tide as a decision-making tool is, is an awful lot better than swimming against the tide. And, you know, so, so I've always been very theme-based in terms of kind of what I am looking for. In terms of it. So I'll give you another kind of example which might be instructive in this regard. I mean, so we we built and 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 ran a very successful higher education business in Singapore. And you know, the reason why we kind of put significant money to work, significant energy to work in terms of building that was that, you know, if you look at say the higher education participation rate or university participation rate amongst G7 countries or or developed countries, it trends towards about 50%. In Singapore, it was at 16% in a highly educated population, a highly wealthy population. And so you know that, or your start point, or my, 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 I guess my kind of null hypothesis is that there is no reason why you wouldn't have those kind of participation rates in Singapore. And so as a result, if you look at then kind of the opportunity that that presents, then it's very substantial in the context of the Singapore population, because even if they don't get to 50%, they ain't going to stay at 16. And so as a result, you kind of say, well, even if we land somewhere in between, this is something that we should take quite seriously. So 
always I've tried to kind of think about things that I believe have got legs that are real kind of stories that you can ride. Now, that's just a start point. And obviously then, in terms of it, it's really then asking myself a series of questions about what are the component parts that we need to put in place in order to be part of that kind of story. And so that really then kind of starts going down to obviously the economics, the data, the facts around it. But that key point for me is 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 always being whether it's an acquisition, whether it's a starting up of a new business or getting engaged in an area of activity that I'm not hitherto, do I believe that it's a theme where we can swim with the tide? Some other kind of things that I think about in the context of success stories, and not always, they can't always be success stories, you know, is 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 then a deep dive into the real nuts and bolts of 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 you know what makes these things successful you know i'm not a huge fan of 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 usps you know the the you know i believe that most successful decisions are a number of small decisions all of which are are a number of small things which if you take in aggregate and collectively will mean that you are successful I think it's very difficult, and certainly in the areas of business, or whether it's in my investment banking days or in education, to kind of have one single thing that kind of defines you as a successful business. And I think seeking that kind of one nugget often means that you will go horribly, horribly wrong. And so that means that you've got to be very honest about your own capabilities, and you've also got to be honest about kind of your competitors' capabilities. You've also got to kind of think about, I think, very carefully the kind of component paths of success. And one of the things that you often find in education, and I'm I'm sure, again, this is true in in a number of different industries, is that people overrate the importance of kind of product over and above distribution. And so there's many times where you've got great kind of products that aren't successful. but that doesn't mean to say that a great product isn't important, but it's, 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 it's a necessary but not sufficient condition for success. And so it's really then around kind of saying, have we got the right bits in place all the way from kind of distributing to delivering in order then that we can make an economic return? And then lastly, what I would also say, I think, within this is, is time. You know. Time can be a great killer of great businesses. And and I would say one of the kind of times where, you know, things haven't gone as well is where timing has has killed you. And this, this is, this can be in my start point in terms of theme and riding a tide. If you go too early, you can be sitting there twiddling your thumbs for, 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 for years. And then you've got to have a very tolerant and a very kind of, uh, supportive backer to kind of allow it to to flow through. But then if you're too late, but I'd still say I'd rather be too late than too early, because ultimately, if you've got a theme, you're not doing it in, you know, you're not going to be the only person who does that. And it's then about how do you do it better? And you know this, Andy, from your own experience, you know, there's, there's, there's nothing necessarily kind of rocket science about providing great tutors, great materials, great, you know, but it's doing all of those component parts incredibly well. 
and constantly asking yourself whether whether you know you are doing it better than anybody else. Yeah, I love how you've uh, you know identified delivery uh, that you can get lost in in product uh, and a timing uh, of the of your decisions uh, is is also uh, critical. Mark, we're gonna uh, we're gonna take a short break for a very quick commercial for our listeners, and uh, we'll be right back. Thanks for listening to the Balancing Act podcast. I'm Andrew Tempty. In my book, Balancing Act, teach coach, mentor, inspire, I explore the characteristics required of leaders who must find balance between strength and vulnerability, confidence and selflessness, passion and measure, and leadership and followership. Balancing Act is available today at Amazon.com. And we're back with Mark Coggins discussing decision-making in the workplace, transnational education, all sorts of uh, great topics today. Mark, is there a mentor, former boss, or colleague that, in your opinion, had just outstanding decision-making skills? What set them apart from everybody else? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that, you know, I've been very fortunate and through my career to have, 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 have worked for and with a number of a huge number of very talented people. I, I just pick out a few and I'm, I'm conscious of time, but but the I'll pick out a few. Number one, and, and this isn't necessarily either chronological or, or in terms of kind of a, a, a ranking of them, but there's a there's a couple who I would would cite in terms of their attributes. One, one's a guy called Stuart Gulliver, who, who was my boss at HSBC, who ran capital markets at HSBC, and indeed became CEO of, of HSBC globally. And he had the attribute of strength in his decision-making, a great ability to be able to capture huge amounts of complex information and synthesize into a relevant decision very rapidly. And in a global investment or a global bank or financial institution the size of HSBC, you're pulling all kinds of bits at all points in time. And he was unbelievable. I've never seen anybody be able to kind of take all of these bits and kind of synthesize it in the way he did. He then was very strong in then kind of having the courage of his convictions, but also then, and I think this is very crucial, is to kind of look at his bench strengths and say, have I got a handful of people who I don't have to, as long as they get what I'm, where I'm coming from and where my direction is, have I got a, a bench of people who then can go and make that happen? And, you know, decision-making, I think, is, is clearly kind of crucial, but it also needs to be seen in the context of then those other bits that kind of, so you're then making the decision about the right people. The big decision is, is this directionally the right way to go? But also then kind of very importantly kind of saying, is this doable with the kind of resources that I have? And coming from a service-based industry, that really, in the end, tends to be kind of very dominated by the right individuals. And indeed, I would say Jonathan Greer had had similar kind of attributes at Kaplan, albeit a, on a slightly smaller uh, platform, 
But again, that asking the question, the decision, have you got a bench that can make that happen? Because ultimately, you can't do it yourself. You have to kind of rely upon and not feel as though you have to kind of take everyone through every single minutiae and detail. And so he, he, he was phenomenal. I've never seen anybody be able to capture that complexity, make a decision, stick by it, and then kind of set people on, on their way just by saying that is our direction and then giving them the, you know, the bench or the, the, the elbow room to make their own decisions within the context of the overall kind of picture. Um, yeah, I, would also yeah Mark, I, I just want to jump in uh, yeah. quick here. The, those, uh, you know, the, synth- the, the synthesis, the, the courage of conviction and the people part, uh, those are the, you know, just boiling what you said down to those three components. Uh, our guest last week, uh, Dan Flynn, uh, talked a lot about courage of, of conviction. Uh, but, the you know, that skill of synthesis is one that we don't talk about enough, I don't think. No, and it's, it's really, really important. But I'd also say, you know, in the courage of convictions, it's also the courage to kind of know when when it's not right. And, 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 you know, I, I would really emphasize to any listener is that sometimes, you know, it felt, it felt all right, but, but all of a sudden, maybe the ties change, maybe circumstances have changed. And it's then being strong enough to say what seemed a terribly good idea at the time, all of a sudden doesn't make sense. But also I think in the context of people, you know, if you've made a mistake and your bench isn't strong enough to execute on that, that strategy, then you've got to act quickly and decisively and, and make the relevant changes. And don't think as a leader that you're necessarily having to, you, you, you can't plug that gap. Or you can plug some of it, but you can't plug all of it. Yeah. So, Mark, I love to talk about skills on this show. Uh, and you have experience in both higher and professional ed. Can you name two skills that our listeners uh, can and should hone to become better decision makers? The first thing I would say about decisions, regardless of, of higher professional or so on, but I do think it's, it's really, really important, is make decisions before you have to. And I say this from both the upside and the downside. Because as I kind of talked about a little bit earlier in, in our story, in, in the evolving or the way that, that transnational education has evolved, is that if you're not constantly asking yourself is what's the new, new thing, what's the next thing, what should we be doing, then you will either be left behind or you will, you will go out of business for sure. So it is much easier to make decisions in the good times than it is in the bad times. And what I would also say is that if you're not making those decisions ahead of time, and the decisions can sometimes be do nothing. You know, that, that can in itself be a decision to say, you know what, it's too early. We don't want to go that. We don't want to spend, let's wait and see for a bit. That is a decision in my, my opinion. But the central point is, Always think about making decisions. Don't wait till you have to make a decision. And on the downside, and I've seen this in my own businesses, but I've also seen it in businesses that I've been part of, is that when decisions are made, when things are going down, 
you will inevitably make bad decisions. Oh, those are, that, that is just wonderful. I think that, that, you know, it, a lot of people would say, oh, that's not a skill, Andy, but, you know, being able to be proactive to not wait until the, the, the last minute, because I fully agree with you that making decisions when things are not going well, uh, is, uh, is, is very hard and very hard to, uh, to recover from. So, Thank, thank you uh, so much for sharing that with our listeners. Uh, so again, Mark, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, my name is Andy Tempty. This is the Balancing Act podcast. You can find us on all the major uh, streaming services, as well as find uh, this episode out on YouTube. Uh, please like, subscribe, rate, share. Uh, sharing is the most important. Subscribing right after that, uh, and then drop us a rating. Thank you so much for listening today. We'll see you next time. Thank you very much.